This is Geek Gab with your host, John and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, March 3rd, 2018. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Today's show, an undeniably an exciting show, a gripping show, the likes of which has seldom been seen in all of Western civilization. But before we get to that, how was your week, man? It's a good week. Uh, spring is just around the corner out here in western Washington. I'm enjoying some sunlight, which is to say not staying indoors and doing geeky things. But Ooh, I, you, you get sunlight in Seattle? We do. It's... A common misconception, which surprised me. It's, uh, we have clouds and it rains often during the winter. But we, we have a regular summer here and it's warm and it's dry. I'm, I'm not kidding. This is not a joke. I legitimately did not know that. I thought Seattle was pretty much cloudy and rainy all year round. Yeah, it's it's cloudy and rainy a, a good uh, you know six seven months out of the year, uh, but it's it's usually a light rain, and uh, and the rest of the year you get a little little sunlight, a little it's nice. Well, sweet. Um, so you haven't done a lot this week, but I heard uh, I heard your players got in some something satisfactory. Yeah, we we uh, this great thing happened in uh, the semi-weekly, bi-weekly Dungeons & Dragons game I do with uh, some friends at work. And they, through the magic of uh, wandering monster tables and and morale checks and monsters who retreat, uh, they developed a villain, a recurring villain, uh, who is a rogue who ended up... He basically would show up and assassinate one of the players before <laughs> running away. Uh, and it happened again this week, but they caught him, and uh, and he did not survive to make the interrogation phase. It was it was brutal. They they were not pleased with this uh, this particular monster, uh, so they got their revenge. Uh, everybody had a really good time. It was a really satisfying uh, game. Yeah, I mean, I imagine as players, when something comes up like that, and you have to fight hard and overcome it, that. Uh, it's really exciting to to finally have uh, to finally get that gold, finally achieve something you've been fighting to do for a long time. And for anybody who's followed my thoughts on OSR and and listened to the Game Night podcasts, you'll know that I'm playing a fifth edition game, but I'm using old school experience rules. So they, I, I gave them a small amount of experience for the heroic uh, slaughter of that obnoxious rogue, but they get the bulk of their XP from finding treasure. So they spent the whole session stealthily exploring a new part of the dungeon and actually came across a big treasure hoard, and a couple people leveled up because of it. And they didn't, they didn't have a, a violent encounter. Uh, until the very end, uh, when the when the rogue assassinated the bard. Excellent. So, would you say that they annihilated their enemy Null? 
Yeah. They did. Would you go so far as to say that any monster that picks a fight with player characters is evincing something of a death wish? You could say that. Any monster picking a fight with PCs in 5th edition, they have a death wish. Would you say that this is not at all a cumbersome or awkward transition into the subject of the show? Uh, as segues go, I think it may have some developmental disabilities, Daddy Warpig. Well, folks, I'm just going to ignore that comment because I can. I'm empowered with that power, and it feels great. Um, today's show, by the way, and we, we, we got together last night, didn't we? Like, 2 o'clock in the afternoon yesterday, and we neither of us had ideas for the show. Yeah, it was really sad. It was a uh, it's such a slow week for me, uh, geek wise. Uh, uh, busy with uh, real life and and only spending some time on on some Dungeons and Dragons. That I realized, wait, a whole week had gone by. <laughs> the whole week had snuck up on you, and just before you even knew it, bam, it was gone. Well, so after that conversation, I looked around and I decided that other than rather than canceling the show i probably ought to go out and do something productive and useful to get ready for this show so we could come here and entertain the audience so being excited i revved up my engines and i went and watched two movies that i probably would not have gone and seen otherwise um and what I saw, in case you haven't put it together yet because you haven't been paying attention to the movies are out, which I understand. Uh, there's not a lot of great movies out right now. I went and saw the brand new Death Wish, and I went and saw a movie with Natalie Portman called Annihilation. Um, I, don't know, I wish I had a coin around to flip to see which one we wanted to talk about first. Let's do Death Wish first. Have you seen the original Death Wish? Yeah, a long time, long time ago. The old Charles Bronson revenge flick. Absolutely. Now, I think that the Death Wish, the first Death Wish, is just a great movie. It's a landmark movie. Came out, I believe, in 1974, uh, unless my memory is playing tricks on me. Um, and Charles Bronson's Death Wish is about Paul Chrissy, who is an architect who lives in Los Angeles, whose family is killed in a mugging. Um, and he decides, he, he is presented in the beginning of the movie like a, the kind of urban uh, liberal who was common at the time. So not modern-day leftists, not modern-day SJWs, but the kind of liberal who was common in 1974. Very soft on crime, did not think that, you know, harsh sentences for criminals uh, were appropriate against the death penalty, things like that. So his family gets killed and he goes and buys a gun. And through a series of circumstances, he ends up becoming a vigilante and shooting several muggers. And the police department starts to hunt him more than they hunted the murderers and scum on the streets. However, and this is going to be a spoiler if you haven't seen the original Death Wish, but it has literally been 44 years 
okay? It's been 44 years, and if you haven't seen it yet, you are displaying an unusual amount of procrastination, and I will not be held responsible for your laziness. So I'm going to spoil part of Death Wish, the original Death Wish, the 1974 Death Wish. The movie is not about him getting vengeance on the person who killed his family. He never does. You never see them again. Instead, he becomes a vigilante who takes on crime because of what happens to him. Given the number of revenge movies uh, uh, and other stories, I mean, he wasn't the first. He was by no means the first person to get revenge. If you want to go back to novels, there was The Count of Monte Cristo. And if you want to go back even further of that, there was Hamlet, who wanted revenge for his murdered father. And I'm sure there are earlier stories even than those. But in this particular one, which may have kicked it off, at least uh, it started that peculiar trend of urban decay and citizens having to take the law into their own hands to combat it that came out of the rising crime rates of the late 60s and early 70s. It kind of caught the zeitgeist of the culture because people were very, very upset about rising crime rates. They were very, very angry about it. And it wasn't until new policing methods and new policing thoughts and mandatory minimum sentencing came into vogue in the 80s that cities like New York began to be cleaned up to where they stopped looking like trash piles, to where they stopped being super high centers of crime. Um, and unfortunately, under the current mayor, New York is heading back down that path to once again become the urban hellhole uh, that it used to be. In any case, um, it is that a very, very 1970s movie perfectly captures the cultural zeitgeist of people being confronted with criminals in the urban environment in big cities who apparently cannot be stopped for whatever reason. And if you look at things like cyberpunk that came along shortly thereafter, um, it was posited or just assumed that this kind of urban decay that would continue indefinitely into the future was just one of those things that happened. It was an immutable force of nature. Nobody really knows what caused it. Nobody could really stop it. It was just gonna keep going. So. People came along, changed the way we enforced the laws, changed the way we did things in the city, started new policies, and brought this under control. Which brings us to the modern-day Death Wish. Does not take place in New York, does not take place in Los Angeles. Would you care to guess what city that is being heavily overrun by crime in the modern day, I, I'm we guessing a, we got a 50 50 shot here. I'm going with Chicago. Perfect choice. It is in point of fact Chicago. What, what, what was your other guess? Detroit? Yeah, Detroit. Um, 
So we're talking Chicago. And the reason why Chicago is is perfectly apt is because of what we hear on the news all the time, right? Sure. I, I wouldn't go anywhere near the south side of Chicago. Absolutely. Just horrible amounts of people getting shot, murders, yada, yada, yada. Um, so looking at the movie, in fact, what they start the movie off with, the very first thing in the movie is a litany of news stories. And I don't know if they're real, if they're really taken from news or if they're B-roll. If, you know, the second unit director just went out and shot these uh, or recorded these. Um, they went out and uh, they're a, uh, a series of news stories about how violent Chicago is. How many people got shot this weekend? How many people got killed this weekend? And Paul Kersey in this movie is not an architect, but he is a surgeon. He's a trauma surgeon in a hospital in the city of Chicago. And so he is intimately familiar with shooting deaths and violence. Um, the very, very first scene, once you get past the montage of criminality, is a cop racing towards the hospital with his partner in the seat. The partner's been shot several times. He's on the verge of dying. They take him into the trauma center. Paul Kersey goes over, tries to save the cop. When he's done with the cop, who dies, he goes over to try to save the gangster who shot him, who's the other person in the trauma center. And the policeman standing there, beat cop in blue uniform, says, you're going to save the piece of filth that killed my partner now. And, and Paul Kersey says, well, if I can't. So right out of the gate, it establishes who he is, what his goal as a doctor is to save lives, no matter who. Later, we come to uh, a soccer game where his daughter, his uh, daughter who's just graduating high school, preparing to go to college, is playing soccer. And another, uh, another parent gets really, really belligerent and tries to start a fist fight. And so Paul Kersey's wife gets involved and Paul backs down. So immediately we are given enough knowledge to know who Paul is. He's a very, very kind man. He's a very, very nice man. He's a man who doesn't like physical confrontation, and he wants to avoid it whenever possible, and not necessarily because he's a coward, although the movie kind of hints that that might actually be the case, but because... He just, uh, that's not his thing. He doesn't think that physical confrontation is uh, is a good or, or, or honorable thing. There's no exposition about that point specifically. It's just kind of what you get. He looks, though, when you see his face, he looks weak. Bruce Willis does a great job. By the way, the movie stars Bruce Willis. I have not yet mentioned that fact. My apologies. He looks weak. He looks um. Mm, he looks like he's intimidated by the thought of violence that he can't confront it. His wife is from Texas. They go to Texas to bury her. Now, I've skipped over the crime because it's not necessarily important. You know the crime is coming. If you did not realize, knowing this is a Death Wish movie, Paul is weak. Crime happens to his family. Bad things start happening to criminals. Okay. So you know the pattern of the movie. Um, 
So, bad things happen to his family. He takes his wife to Texas to, get, uh, to bury her with her family in the family graveyard. And um, when they get to Texas, his father-in-law, as they're driving home from the funeral, sees some people on his ranch uh, who are poaching. And he pulls out a rifle and goes and shoots at them to chase them off his land. Um, and so he says, which becomes the uh, sort of, which becomes the sort of theme of the movie, when you have an emergency, cops are trained to come and catch the criminal and clean up afterward, which is like getting the fox on the way out of the hen house. If you want to protect what's yours, you have to do it yourself. So, um, that becomes the theme of the movie, the theme of Paul's journey. And again, this is deathless. All this is primary, you know, it is modernized. It's taken into the modern setting, but it is all of the themes from the original Death Wish. And as far as it goes, Bruce Willis, he sets it up and he's going, he does a great job of presenting who Paul Kersey is through a series of, uh, through a series of unfortunate events. And I want to, I want to get into some of the technical issues with this story. I got a page of notes, um, which actually was six pages of notes. Sitting there in the theater in the dark, I take notes on the page so I can bring them to you, my audience. Um, if you look at the movie, I thought the movie, if I was to give it an overall kind of sense, was good but not great. It definitely wasn't the landmark that the original Death Wish was. And something that happened in um, something that happened in the movie, it, the movie is directed by Eli Roth, who has done a lot of what they call torture porn movies. So Eli Roth, um, if you've ever seen an Eli Roth movie or heard about it, you know what you're in for, and I would say that surprisingly enough, there is only one scene in the movie that has that Eli Roth touch to it. There's only one scene really in the movie um, that that you can tell. Okay, this is one of his movies. But if you've seen Inglorious Bastards, the uh, the movie where Eli Roth plays the bear Jew, a big, huge, muscular guy with a baseball bat who beats one of the Nazi officers. If you've seen that Quentin Tarantino movie, that's who Eli Roth, the director, is. So some of the other movies that he's known for are The Green Inferno, which is about you know kids getting lost in the jungle and very, very bad blood torture things happening to them. Hostel, Hostel Part 2, um, Cabin Fever from 2002, so on and so forth. These, these are the kind of movies he... He really directs uh, Knock Knock with Keanu Reeves. Um, and so if you have seen one of his movies, you're thinking, oh, yeah, this will uh, 
Um, this is going to be, you know, an absolute bloodbath, beginning to end. But uh, it isn't. There's only one scene that you really know that it's an Eli Roth movie. The script. One of the things I, I, you could say people shouldn't do it, and there's a lot of people who, um, who disdain this kind of writing. A lot of, at least at three different points that I can remember, the plot has moved forward solely by coincidence. And coincidence, um, the coincidence is um, a lot of writers have used coincidence in a really good way, or at least have produced lasting works with coincidence. Uh, for example, um, the writer of Charles Dickens and a Chris, uh, excuse me, writer Dickens used coincidence a lot in his books because it happened to him in his life. He saw a lot of coincidences happening in his life that brought him good things and sometimes bad things. So he depended upon that in his books because it reflected the way he saw the world. And during the last 50, 60 years, people have gotten really, really contemptuous of coincidence. And being contemptuous of coincidence, they say their name, movie, or story, which has it. Um, is bad, and you're not supposed to do that. You can't do that. I, I'm not necessarily so sure. Coincidences do happen in reality, and to a limited extent, they may be fine in a story. The coincidences I have tended to find as a writer that if they act against your characters, people will accept them more than if they act for your characters, um, and if they were kind of expecting the coincidence. If they could see that things were set in motion to where these two people would collide at a moment in time, even if they coincidentally ran into each other at the mall or something. Um, audiences tend to accept that more. In this movie, I'm not sure people are going to like that. So if you see it and that sort of telling bothers you, um, you are not going to enjoy the movie. So it's coincidence-driven. It is a much more conventional um, a much more conventional movie than the original Death Wish. The original Death Wish does not have Paul Kersey confronting his family's murderers. This movie, and if you've seen the trailers, and I'll get back to the trailers in just a sec, this movie, if you've seen the trailers, you absolutely are aware that he is, in point of fact, hunting down the people who killed his family, and that's what the rest of the movie is about. So in that sense, it's a lot more conventionally structured than the original Death Wish. Um, it is about a guy actually getting revenge for his family and not just becoming a vigilante hunting the urban jungle. Um, now, Kersey also, and this is, I think, interestingly done, because it's also true to life. Kersey depends, or rather, in several instances, lucky things happen to Kersey that if they hadn't happened, he would have gotten killed. And once again, people can say, oh, that's lazy screenwriting. I don't think it is lazy screenwriting in this movie because they talk about, first, the danger of potential copycat killers. So that's set up early on. They have, uh, you know, clips of radio news shows or morning shows on Sirius FM and stuff, uh, XM. And people are talking about it, arguing about Paul Kersey's one-man 
war on crime. They don't know it's him, obviously. They call him the Grim Reaper. He's a white guy in a big black hoodie. Coincidentally, I was wearing a black hoodie when I went to the theater, which kind of made me nervous coming out. I'm like, you know, don't worry, folks. I am not a copycat. Didn't just, just in case people were a little bit nervous. I was wearing a black hoodie. I was not there to shoot criminals in the face. So they started off talking about the possibility of copycats, people getting upset about coffee copycats. The detectives who are investigating it, their captain comes in and yells at them saying he's been getting calls from major, from departments and mayors across the country because they're worried about copycats. So this is solidly established. And then they turn around and there is a copycat killer who goes to shoot somebody and gets killed. The same sort of situations where luck would play a factor with Kersey happen to this copycat killer, only he gets killed. Which says to you, the audience, if you're, uh, or subconsciously to the audience, yes, there are lucky breaks happening that are helping off, helping out our main character, but these lucky breaks are unusual. Here are other people that the lucky breaks are going the other way for. He is just the one who happened to, to make it. And that's how, that's real life too. When you talk to people who've ever been through war, why they lived and the person next to them died is because the ricochet bounced one way instead of bouncing the other way. It's often very, very random. So yes, if you were a snide, snooty uh, critic, you could get all angry and upset about it and say, oh, it's just luck that this happened to fall off a shelf and and knock the bad guy uh, a little bit, make him a little bit uh, stunned. And and the point is, yes, it is luck, but luck doesn't break that way for everybody. It's, it, it's actually realistic in that sense. I think the script was, on for the most part, very, very well constructed in that all of the potential ramifications of uh, a vigilante killer are mentioned they're not discussed at length. They don't have, you know, five-hour debates of the pro and cons of vigilante killings. But they're mentioned and they're addressed in the movie in various scenes. So the script is constructed very well. Eli Roth puts the scenes together very well so that the movie flows. And it is a modern movie. They address all of the things you would expect to be addressed or that might really happen in the modern world. For example... The very first time he runs into a carjacking and decides to stop it, somebody is filming him on their cell phone. The police come, take the movie from them and say, you know, don't upload this. And the person says, I already uploaded that two hours ago and I'm getting 100,000 hits. So the movie goes viral. Well, yeah, that's what happens in today's world. People shoot things on their cell phones because we all have cameras with us all the time. We all have video cameras with us all the time and people upload stuff all the time to social media. So all of the permutations, all of the differences in society from the original movie, from the technology available at the time of the original movie are all addressed. The existence of cell phones. Uh, Paul Kersey has taken a couple of cell phones from criminals in order to look at their contacts to try and trace who they talk to. The police mention at one point, oh yeah, we're going to trace the GPS of these cell phones. So Paul has to go and destroy the cell phones so that he doesn't get caught. 
All of these things are mentioned. All of these things are addressed. And they're done so in a manner that does not strain uh, disbelief. There is... My main complaint about the movie is not with the movie. It is with the trailer. Too much of the... Too many of the key moments in the movie are revealed in the trailer and it spoils what should be one of the most suspenseful scenes in the movie if you've seen any of the trailers. So if you had a chance to not see a trailer, don't watch the trailer. Just go watch the movie if you're interested in it because they do spoil one of the major scenes that should be really, really tense, that should be really, really, you know, seemingly hazardous or dangerous for Paul. It's... Uh, it's completely spoiled. Um, looking at the movie, I would say it's an enjoyable movie. It's good, but not great. I liked it, but it's not something I would go out of my way to see again. It's not something to go, I would go out of my way to buy. Um, and I think that the original Death Wish is is better at presenting a grimy city. Um, and I don't, I don't know, it's just my preference that in movies like this, they actually have a low budget so that things don't look perfectly clean, perfectly shot, perfectly edited. A little bit of slightly lower um, levels of skill on a lot of things, like in the Mad Max movies, the original Mad Max movies. They benefited from a low budget because it made the movie feel more real. It made the movie feel dirtier, grittier, um, more more like a, it was an actual documentary of something that was happening and not a highly slick, highly produced Hollywood production. I'm not saying the movies... There are other things in the movie that are just not quite as... Not quite as well done as I would like. This is not a movie that you're going to go into, or at least that I'm going to go into and want to see again and again and again. But it is, however, uh, a great movie. Uh, or a good movie, not a great movie. And, and when I say good, I don't mean, uh, you know what we say nowadays. We're so used to people over-dramatizing everything using huge uh, terms. Oh, man, that was absolutely fantabulous, incredibleistic. Good used to mean really good, right? It used to mean something that you want to go see, something worthwhile. And so now it means, no, it wasn't actually that good. It's ironic. Good now means, no, it wasn't actually that good. But this movie really is good in the original sense of the word. It's worth seeing if you like revenge movies. Um, I'm going to pause for just a moment while I take a sip of water. We have been having some technical difficulties. I think we've got those cleared up. Yeah, how's my mic working? I'm not hearing any of the feedback or any of the right. warning, so... Sounds good. I guess I fixed it on my end. That's a little disappointing, although the connection with Eli Roth and Quentin Tarantino uh, reminds me of last week's episode when we talked about a revenge story being such a simple and, and relatable structure that, that it's easy to use it as a framework for the rest of your screenplay. Yeah. Yeah, and Quentin Tarantino, most of his movies, like we discussed last week, are, are revenge movies for good reason. Um, man, the Eli Roth scene. There's just one scene that is an Eli Roth scene, and it was really, you know, hard to watch. Um, 
I just uh, it's it's a it's rated R for good reason in this it, it, if only for this one specific scene um, where uh, I don't know, it's gonna gross people out if I say it, but the brains hit the floor. Oh wow! Yeah, um, that, that, that's that's interesting. But it, it is not constant violence like that, uh, and so I don't know if he just let his his darker nature get the best of him for that one scene or what. But yeah, it wasn't a bad movie. I didn't feel like I'd wasted my money. Uh, and the movie isn't trying to screw you over as the audience. The movie isn't trying to be smarter than you or play tricks on you or make you invest in it and then yank the rug out from under you. It's just a uh, good, solid revenge thriller. And it is, yeah, I mean, good, not great. It's it's worth seeing. If you want to go see a movie and this sounds like your thing, go see it. The, the only thing that really weirded me out really badly in the theater was that the dude next to me who brought his like four-year-old daughter to see the movie with him. Oh, wow. Really? Uh, I don't know if he's like a single dad and he just wanted to get out and see a movie. And so he just brought her along. I was kind of looking over going, you know, she, she, she seems maybe a bit young for this. I, I would think, am I wrong? Is that? (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, there's, I mean, I watched all sorts of R-rated movies when I was uh, when I was a bit young, but four is that's extra young. So, um, I say the things about a movie setting you up that thinking it's smarter than you are and yanking the rug out from under you, not just because I despise those things, um, but because they're kind of thematic. Uh, and I'll get to that in just a second. Do we have any, uh, is there any questions in the chat other than people who were noticing our technical difficulties? Norm Anderson in the chat, also hailing from the great Pacific Northwest, uh, wanted to confirm that it's not just another take-in film. It is not. Uh, I mean, you said it was a revenge flick, so it sounds like it kind of could be. Yeah. I, I Well, I mean, I guess it depends on how closely, how finely you want to chop it up. Taken is about a father whose daughter, the first one whose daughter is kidnapped, and he goes to get his daughter back, and he's chasing her through this hierarchy of criminals. She's alive. He's trying to rescue her. This is a revenge flick. His family uh, is hurt. Um, He's burying members of his family, and he goes to find the people who are responsible. Um, I, I don't think this is a spoiler. I think this is kind of interesting. When he goes to buy a weapon legally at a gun store, he's told all these things about how long it will take, how the paperwork goes, and that um, they can track him by the bullets he uses. So when somebody comes into the trauma room, who's a criminal who's gotten shot, who has a gun on them that kind of falls to the floor. He pushes it underneath something so people don't see it. Instead of buying a legal gun and using that, he takes a gun off the crooks, and that's what he uses to start his um, 
actions against criminals is a gun that he got uh, from a crook. So he, they took the time to show, okay, this is how you legally get a weapon, and he circumvented it so he wouldn't get caught. They also show some things that are really, really cool. Like if you hold a pistol in the wrong way, the slide on top, when it racks back and forth, can cut your hands if you don't know how to show a pistol or how to hold a pistol. Well, they show that in the movie. He doesn't know how to shoot a gun because he's never shot a gun before in his entire life. And even though he practices some before he goes out to try and look for trouble, he still gets his hand cut because he doesn't know how to hold it. He has to go. And this is where the YouTube thing comes in again. He, and I don't know if they say YouTube specifically, but it's YouTube. He goes there and finds people who are showing him how to uh, field strip a Glock, clean it to keep it from, you know, to keep it usable. And so he's watching these videos on how to do that. Um, it shows how easy it is for people to get uh, information in the modern era. And again, this is the result of a screenwriter who bothered to think things through, who bothered to think what the modern setting was like and to so so that there's nobody in the audience or people making like honest trailers or cinema sins or whatever can't say, oh well. You know, they don't ever mention YouTube. Uh, why doesn't that ever come up? Shouldn't people be posting stuff to YouTube? Wouldn't they be getting information? Yeah, he does that. All of the things that you would expect that he has to deal with, he actually deals with. And all of the all of the steps in his psychological transformation from a person who is, let's face it, afraid of violence. I know I said something different earlier in the, in the show. I'm, I'm, I'm revising my thinking. A person who is af afraid of violence on some level, who cloaks that with the notion of morality, he uses the morality to excuse kind of the fear he feels at violence. His steps from that person to someone who is willing to go out and look for trouble to hurt people make perfect sense. The things that happen to him and the things he does come together and make sense. They show his transformation as a gradual thing. It's not just somebody flipped a switch and he goes out and kills a bunch of people. I, I hope the, I hope he's satisfied with that answer. <laughs> <laughs> chat's, chat's quiet otherwise. Okay. Um, is, was there anything about the movie you were wondering before we jump to our next topic? No, I, I was actually wondering about, about the plot. I, I didn't expect them to do the same story that they did in the 70s, and it sounds like they did not. No, the, they didn't. The movie is very well constructed, um, and it is enjoyable, if not quite reaching the heights of some of Bruce Willis's earlier films. So... Um, all right, now I was talking about movies that think they're smarter than you, that build you up and then yank the rug out from under you. Uh, and I, of course, am bringing that up, not just because I bring that up a, a lot, because I hate, hate those kinds of movies and books, but because it has direct application to Annihilation. Now, I had a whole long list of notes for Death Wish because I kept on thinking about it. But Annihilation, I've got precisely three notes of. It's pretentious, it thinks it's smarter than it is, 
And during one of the climactic scenes, it is the most cliched film school, uh, just just the worst film, pretentious film school movies, every single cliche brought to life on the screen. It is awful. I was cringing. Um, do, do you understand the kinds of things I'm talking about? Have you seen some of these? Film school movies made by would-be auteurs. Uh, you'll you'll have to fill me in. I, I've seen I've only seen mockeries and parodies of them. <laughs> well, the mockeries and parodies do. In fact, they had a mockery of this sort of thing. Grand Theft Auto V. One of the movies you could go see if you went to the movie theaters was a mockery of this kind of thing. It was a big flat shot with a character sitting up against the wall, talking to the camera. And it was justified because there was literally a video camera in the room, which is itself a cliche. Characters holding video cameras and talking to each other has been a cliche since Reality Bites uh, in the 90s. Um, looking at the camera, saying all these dreary things about existence and so on and so forth before something else happens. That is, It just drove me nuts. It is a movie that didn't go off the beam because it was never on the beam to begin with. And what really frustrated me, what really pissed me off about this movie is that it has all of the elements that would make a super great adventure story and it squanders all of them with trying to be something better than it is trying to be literary, trying to be one of those self-important movies or science fiction books that aren't content with making great adventure stories that the audience loves. They're not content with making things that are interesting and involving. They want to be somehow deep. This movie wanted so badly to be a rival that I could literally taste it in my mouth. You know, I was I was eating popcorn. And I stopped and said, wait a minute. What's that strange aftertaste when I'm eating my popcorn? And I took a sip of water to cleanse my palate. And there it was in the back of my throat. I'm like, oh, that's a rival. I've tasted this before. I don't remember what our verdict on arrival was when we did it on our show last year. Um, but this movie, this movie wants to be a rival and is, it wants to be as well regarded as a thinky movie as a rival and it isn't. Um, but it could have been a kick-ass movie and I'm not even necessarily talking about a hyperkinetic, uh, speed through action adventure movie where you never have a pause beginning to end, which are usually pretty bad action movies. Literally never having a pause in your action beginning to end is actually pretty bad. If you look at something like, say, Die Hard, the epitome of modern, the apotheosis of modern day action movies, they had a lot of slow moments interspersed with sudden uh, violence. And that's what made the movie interesting. This movie could have done exactly that. What it did instead was set up a lot of mysteries. It was almost the J.J. Abrams thing. Um, oh, setting up a bunch of questions, question after question, never answering them. 
never answering them. Uh, that's that's fun. I'm, I'm glad that lots of people watched Lost, so we have to put up with this crap for the next 20 years. So, at the end of the movie, they don't answer any of the questions. They just have a really cliched and stupid ending followed by a cliched and stupid twist. And I'm afraid I'm going to do a spoiler, okay? If you're going to want to see this movie, which maybe you want to, the visuals are are spectacular. They're very, very well done, really odd in circumstances, but very, very well done. If you want to go see this movie, then don't listen to the following spoiler. It's going to be very short. Just skip over this little bit. Um, they end with, a horror movie cliche. Huh. Do you know what the cliche is for horror movie endings? There's a few. I like the uh, the one lone survivor. It's usually the girl who survives. Or the uh, the the other one that, that I love is the monster opens his eyes in the last frame, you know, the last scene. With the with the sudden music, uh, there's lacking. A few, there's a few more. Wh which one does this do? Lacking only the sudden musical sting. It does both of those. <laughs> Lovely. Well, I mean, the, all the all the protagonists are women anyway, so they they it had to be one lone survivor, right? That was yeah. the girl. Um, let's talk about the movie. Um, a little bit more in depth about why the movie sucked and why it could have been awesome. Meteor crashes on a lighthouse that's apparently close to a small town and a swamp. We immediately skip uh, after the credits three years later, and Natalie Portman is sitting in a classroom lecturing people about cell division and cancer. I didn't time it. I don't care. But it's boring as crap, and I'm looking at this and I'm getting this sinking feeling in the bottom pit of my stomach, like, oh no, this is supposed to tie into the theme of the movie somehow. And it's going to tie into later all these other events. She's lecturing us about cancer and, and how cancer cells go wild and just, just all this. It was boring. It was tried. And immediately, you know, you're on the wrong path. Immediately, you know, the movie has gone wrong. Um... Her husband has been missing for 12 months. He was in the army, and he's disappeared. She hasn't seen him. And then all of a sudden, he appears out of nowhere, and then he starts bleeding from his mouth. Now, this is the opening scene. These are not spoilers yet. He starts bleeding. She calls an ambulance. They're racing to the hospital. He's coughing up blood. Four black. SUVs come out of nowhere, turn on their flashing lights, run the ambulance off the, off the road. They knock her out, and she wakes up wearing prison orange in a room on a bed. And she starts being interrogated by someone who works for the government. I... Oh, they wanted to get in on that that Stranger Things love, didn't they? That the, the, these scenes have happened so many times in so many movies, you have to do them well for them to matter. 
and they just didn't do them well. It turns out that when this strange meteor crashed, it threw up this barrier they call the Shimmer, which, again, if you've seen the trailers, you've seen. It's that wall of shifting colors that kind of looks like an oil slick or something set up on its side that it looks thick and, and liquidy. And um, it's been growing slowly for three years. And every single person, every single device, everything they've sent into, they call it the shimmer, has never come back. Nothing has ever come back from the shimmer for three years. Nothing has ever come back from the shimmer. They don't know what's going on on the other side. They can't use satellites to see into it. They can't send drones into it, except her husband, who did not appear in the border of the shimmer. He magically transported to where they lived. Now, I'm just going to get these small things out of the way. In reference to Death Wish, the very first thing that happens on the very first vigilante thing he does is what? Somebody tapes him and uploads it to YouTube. And yet, this 100-foot-high wall of shimmering color, encompassing a huge area, including a town, swamp, on the ocean. It actually extends out into the ocean for three years. Nobody noticed it. Nobody. Nowhere. Didn't hit the news. Didn't hit rumors. Nobody. Uh-huh. I admit that's a small quibble. It's, you know what that reminds me of? I think we talked about uh, Hannibal, the TV show. Yes. You, the internet apparently doesn't exist in the world of that show. You just have to accept that you're not watching a story about real life. You're watching someone's horrible <laughs> nightmare. And you just have to go with it in order to accept... You have to accept the premise and just go with it. Is that the case with this movie? Because that's what it sounds like. Yeah. Excuse me. Like, this is this is a, a horror-slash-pretentious art film, and you're just going to have to go with it, guys. So... Um, and the movie is cutting back and forth between, apparently, the present day after she's gotten out of the shimmer and her apparently relating to them what happened in the shimmer and then it's also doing time jumps back to her memories of her husband before he left and her memories of other things so they're jumping back and forward in time all the time and that's not necessarily confusing but it is annoying and pretentious um Unless you're Chris Nolan, that's hard to pull off well. <laughs> yeah, 
yeah, there's only so so many people can do it, and and by only so many people, I mean one. Chris um, Nolan, Chris Nolan's allowed to mess with time and space. You aren't. So, the five of them walk through the shimmer and look around. And my first thought is, okay, you've gone in. Turn around and get the hell out. Because if nothing's ever come out, you go in for a little bit, record what you can, and then you leave. You don't go in for a four-month safari. You just leave. And you've got a little bit of information. And then you go in and do it again and go a little bit further. Maybe you attach cables to the people so they can go in. And if trouble happens, they can get yanked out. Right? These are not complicated things that people should have thought of. They go in to this weird place where nobody's ever come out. They are not wearing protection. They do not have, for example, the suits that they wore in Arrival, right? To prevent themselves from being biologically contaminated. You don't know what's happening because you haven't done the basic scouting job necessary and they don't bother to protect themselves. Why? Lovely. I mean, these are just... The movie has a story it wants to tell. It's its own peculiar, pretentious story. And in order to tell its pretentious story, it just skips over basic logic or even cinematic awesomeness. Because that would be cool. This is maybe a little bit of a cliche, but you could do it well. They show a party going in in full bio suits, hooked to cables so they can be pulled out. Bad things happen. The cable starts getting pulled in. All of a sudden, it goes loose. They wheel the cables out, and there's nothing but blood and pieces of fabric attached to the cable. Okay. If that's a little bit cliched, it could be done well. And if I had a, you know a year to think up a script... Maybe I could do something even better than that. But the point is, they didn't even try to do something gripping or interesting. This movie is not about the threat of annihilation of the planet Earth. This movie is not about a scientific mystery that people are trying to solve. This movie is not about uh, the military having to scout out this anomaly, or scientists or government workers having to scout out an anomaly. By the way, all the things I've just said, they did on Stranger Things. They had an anomaly on Stranger Things. They sent people in in freaking biohazard suits. And if I remember right, there was even a cable attached. They could pull people the hell out. I, I might be misremembering that, though. No, that happened. Stranger Things did it 
right. Sorry, I, I got off track there a little bit. This movie is not about any of the things that you could make a great movie about. Oh, man. People going into the shimmer and all of a sudden there's monsters and the big military expedition gets cut up and there's a small group of them and they have to get the hell out. That would be great. That could be great. That could be awesome. Or a small an expedition goes in, gets cut the hell up, and the survivors, you think they're dead, and the second expedition goes in to rescue them and get them out. That could be great. Or the shimmer appears, it encompasses the town. All of these innocent people are lost behind this thing, so they send in people to rescue survivors and get them the hell out. How many different stories could you tell? There's a disease that's come down. Creatures from inside the shimmer come out. People start getting the disease and dying. You have to send expeditions in to get samples of this unknown biological life form so they can analyze it and solve this, cure this sickness before it begins to spread among the general population and kill off everybody in the country, right? There are four different stories off the top of my head. I didn't think about these yesterday or before the show. Four different stories off the top of my head, all of which are better than this movie. All of them more interesting than this movie. What this movie is actually about is Natalie Portman and Oscar Isaac, who plays her husband, and it's all about her feelings of guilt at having cheated on him. We're not sure if it happened before. From a couple of lines, it sounds like it happened before the mission started. She cheated on her husband with somebody else, and she feels really, really guilty about it because shortly after that, her husband disappears, and so she can't process her grief. And so we have to sit through two hours of boring, slow exposition of pretentious camera work that is designed to impress the audience rather than entertain the audience while she tries to work through these feelings of betrayal. Uh, these feelings that she's betrayed him. This survivor's guilt. It's awful. I hate this kind of movie. And there were so many cool things that could have been done. Guess what happens at one point? They're in the shimmer. These five women are in the shimmer. They send in women, by the way, because none of the men have come back, so they figure out why the hell not. We'll send in a squad of five women. Sure. Whatever. I, I follow. Makes sense. Um, I don't care at this point. What the hell? Um, and one of them gets caught by the foot and dragged into the water, and what comes out of it is a massive... I believe it's an alligator. It might be a crocodile. And when they open its mouth, it's got teeth like a shark. 
it's been mutated. It's been changed. Okay? That's a kind of a cool monster. It's not super scary, but it's kind of a cool monster. There's another cool monster that shows up at some other time. There's a really, really creepy thing that happens with the body that unfortunately I've played The Last of Us and it's 100% out of The Last of Us. So I've seen it several, several times. So it didn't really grip me as much as it could have been. But there's all these spores flying around and what I'm screaming in my mind is, you freaking morons, why aren't you in biohazard care? Because <laughs> you're going to die. You're <laughs> breathing in fungus that's going to murder you. Extraterrestrial fungus. And, and this is what I was thinking at the time. It isn't in, actually in the movie in this way. Extraterrestrial fungus that will mutate you or kill you or whatever. You fools, you fools, you fools. There's so many things that could have been done that might have been done great. Terrestrial creatures in a freaking swamp being mutated by some extraterrestrial force and into horrifying, terrifying monsters. People who, and you see this in a trailer, so I'm not giving anything away, who literally have plants growing out of their skin because their body is being mutated by this, whatever's going on inside the shimmer, until they're just the silhouette of a plant that's left in the shape of a human, and the person is gone. They change into a plant. Cool. Freaky, right? Yeah. Cool. Potentially interesting. Pissed away. Absolutely wasted. Flushed down the toilet. None of that cool stuff is touched on. None of the cool monsters are touched on. None of that cool stuff is touched on because by gully and by gum, we can tell a cool story about an alien invasion or we can talk about how guilty Natalie Portman feels because she boned a co-worker. I, I I I did not think this was a great movie. Um I wasn't as upset about this now as I am last night because I'm just thinking of a lot of things um that they could have done with this. So much you could have done with this. And and they had great special effects, they had great creature effects. It was atmospheric, it was moody, it was shot in kind of this unique way, and I don't even know how to describe it. I mean, I understand what they're going for. It was shot as if a lot of things are being seen slightly hazy, not really hazy, just slightly hazy enough. And if you watch the movie, you'll understand why they shot it this way. But it, it added this sort of dreamlike quality and it could have been really cool if they had answered the mysteries. It could have been really cool. At one point in the movie, very, very early on, right after they get into the shimmer, they wake up. And four days has passed, and they have no memory of it. They have been in the shimmer for four days, 
and they don't remember any of it. Now, just that right there could have been a cool mystery to deal with and given them a clue as to what was going on in the shimmer and how to do things, but it's never followed up on. Never, not ever, not once do they say what caused that. It just happens. It's just there to make you think, oh, that's an intriguing mystery. Maybe there'll be an intriguing answer to follow it up. No. No intriguing answers. Just stuff like that thrown out. No answers. At one point, uh, and again, this is another spoiler. And I'm going to have to spoil this part just because I need to explain how stupid it is. At one point, Natalie Portman runs into an alien life form who has come to Earth through this, what they think is a meteor, and maybe it is, maybe it isn't, we don't know. And she interacts with it, and later, in this interview that they keep on cutting backwards and forwards through time, they ask her, what did the aliens want? And she says, well, I don't think they wanted anything. Huh. So the people who made this movie were so focused on the irrelevant, incidental subplot of Natalie Portman feeling guilty because she boned a co-worker that they couldn't even be bothered to figure out what the hell the aliens were doing on Earth. They literally couldn't come up with an answer of why the shimmer happened and what the aliens are intending to do. Now, I could come up off the top of my head with at least two good answers and maybe three. The aliens crash-landed here on accident. They're trying to get off the planet and causing problems with our ecology by accident. The aliens came here on purpose. They're scientists and scouts who want to study our planet and study us and understand us and... They set up an artificial biome that's walled off by this energy so that they could have a place to live and eat and supplies and stuff while they studied us. And then they're going to leave. Number three, the aliens came to Earth to conquer the planet and wipe out humanity. And this is their base, their foothold. Those are three good, solid motivations for the aliens, and this movie is ultimately meaningless because the aliens don't want anything. They're not here for any reason, and there's no reason why all of these cool 
mutation-y things are happening. None. There is no explanation. There is no answer. There is nothing in the mystery box. Not because they didn't open it up, but because they deliberately left it empty and they told you so. They tell you so. This mystery box is empty. There's no answer to the mystery. That's how bad this movie is. They deliberately omit quite possibly the most important part of the mystery of why all these things are happening. The aliens literally have no motivation. They're not even curious. They just are. I'm impressed. I find this irritating. Do, do, do I seem irritated? I feel like I'm coming across as irritated. Well, you know, that sort of thing's really difficult to pick up uh, just with voice over the internet, but I think I got that. Um, you might be a little irritated. <laughs> I want to take my notes and pull them out of my notebook and rip them up and throw them away. You need one of those memory scrubbers that, that'll just make you forget that you ever saw that movie. They've got so many potentially cool things in the movie. At one point, they run into this vine with a bunch of flowers growing on it, and it's impossible because species of flowers grow one flower. Rose bushes grow roses, right? Peonies grow peonies, right? Only this particular species of plant has a dozen different types of flowers, and the biologist says... This is impossible. Okay, cool detail. I'm on board. Later on, they go in, and there's some antelope-like things that their antlers have flowers growing out of them. Right? Cool. Strange antelope things that are obviously not quite Earth-like that have flowers growing out of them. Plant and animal... Growing together. Cool. There's kind of a mutated bear who seems to have been blinded and it's hunting by sound and it screams and sounds just like a human person being tortured to draw people off to attack them when they're unwary. Cool. There's a forest of trees made out of crystal. Cool visuals, cool creatures, cool ideas, pissed away. That's what Annihilation is. Well, I think it just goes to show that script is really what matters. All the cool ideas in the world mean nothing if you've got a bad story. I don't, it, it's based on a Jeff Vandermeer novel. I've never read anything by him. I don't know how closely it hues to the story in his book. But this sort of pretentious, literary, artistic, pseudo-intellectual BS is what I hate about modern science fiction, and there's entirely too much uh, about of it.
And it's why I hope that people writing pulp, people writing in the pulp revolution bring back something good. When the hell did we stop even knowing what should be in a good story? I've seen crappy movies, really, really crappy movies, where the people knew what should be in the story, they just didn't pull it off well, right? Where they knew that the hero was heroic and he had a goal and the enemy had a goal and they clashed. And even though the movie was mediocre or bad, they still knew what should be in a story and tried to pull it off. When did we, when did we forget what stories are about and how to tell a story? I find that just frustrating beyond belief. Okay. Um, Unless we've got some questions, let's go to it. Do we, is there anybody in the chat who has questions about this before we uh, kick off? No, I, I think I think they're just about, as upset about it as you are. <laughs> uh, Gizmod76 uh, may have read the books. He says, I don't think anything is revealed in the book series either. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a crappy science fiction series. Crappy. Absolutely not. This is the... This is the uh, analogy I thought of last night. There is something good and noble and decent about being a toy maker. About making a doll for a little girl or about making a board game or about making a toy soldier or whatever. Yes, you are only making toys. You're not a diplomat. You're not a general. You're not, you know, a scientist. You're just a toy maker. But there is something noble and decent about making something that lifts people's spirits, that makes it easier for them to get through their lives, that on the worst day of their life, they can turn to what you made and feel the few moments of joy, have their burdens taken away, forget about problems for a bit that they can't do anything about anyway. That is a noble profession. But you have to be humble enough. If you write stories, novels, make movies, you have to be humble enough to realize you are just a toy maker and that's okay. You are doing something good and noble. You don't have to also pretend to be just as important as a great leader or a general or a scientist or whatever. If you're going to be a toy maker, try to be the best damn toy maker you can. Don't try to be something you're not. Otherwise, you're going to make crappy toys. And that's what Annihilation is, by way of analogy, is a crappy toy that nobody wants to play with other than other pretentious, pseudo-intellectual assholes. Um, I, uh, do you have any last words before we take off? Well, it's been fun listening to the rants as usual. Uh, thanks for hanging out with me, Daddy Warpig, and thanks to hanging out in the chat for those of you listening live.
Um, I want to thank everybody in the chat for tuning in, by the way. Um, if you're interested in modern action movie revenge horror, revenge stories, go see Death Wish. Um, if you like long, boring, pretentious movies that are really about something completely different and then all of the important things in it aren't actually important at all, by all means, oh, and you want the rug yanked out from under you at the very last minute and you want it all to have never been for anything and the entire movie was pointless, by all means, go see Annihilation. You will 100% get what you came for. Um, this is Geek Gab. We're here about every week, about the same time, talking about video games, movies, um, music occasionally, uh, books, comic books once in a while, uh, talking to writers, interviewing people, whatever. With great show. Thanks, for everybody, for tuning in. We're here once a week about the same time. We're available on YouTube at youtube.com slash geekgab. Or you can search for us on SoundCloud, on the Google Play Store, and iTunes under Geek Gab. Subscribe to the podcast and uh, download us to your favorite mobile device. Uh, like the show if you liked it. Leave us questions or comments below the video here. And we are leaving you for today. But don't you worry. Don't you fret. We will be back.